Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We were talking in equipping hour about the um, rightly, a part of our worship is the preaching of the word and what means of God's grace. And I have to confess to you that this week's message has been incredibly difficult (laughs) to prepare for, not because what Paul says is necessarily that complicated, but because... and he does this in many places throughout this letter. I've already seen this a few times where you just run up against trying to explain the subtleties of what Paul is doing is, uh, is really staggering for me to try and distill that down in a way that's clear and helpful. So I'm going to ask the Lord's help this morning because I think uh, I need it all the time, and I probably should pray all the time, but I definitely need God's grace this morning to be able to articulate in clear clearly um, explain and hopefully apply these profound truths that that Paul has given us in 1 Corinthians 9. So let's go to the Lord in just a brief word of prayer. Father, we come to you, I come to you, asking that you would help me to rightly divide the word of truth. Sometimes, Lord, the things that are so obvious require us to stop and look at them in a little bit more detail. And, uh, And so I would ask that you would help all of us to hear what you have um communicated to us through the Apostle Paul and his pen to the Corinthian church. Help us to hear those things. Help us to understand them. And lastly, Lord, lay upon us the conviction that is necessary to obey them and to magnify you uh, in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would take these things to heart. For your name's sake, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning, so please turn there. If you have a copy of God's Word at hand, We are looking at this chapter as one giant message that will be broken up into several parts. But this morning, uh, and really it began, what this topic began back in chapter 8, where uh, Paul's instruction to the Corinthian church addresses the issue of the Christian's freedom. And the topic has come to the forefront in Paul's correspondence with them as a disagreement arose between different groups within the church Uh, on this whole matter of eating meat sacrificed to idols. There were believers in the church in Corinth who looked at that issue through two very distinct lenses. One group, we called them the knowledge group, uh, gave basically free reign. They said, listen, we have the uh, freedom to dine in an idol's temple. We have the freedom to purchase meat sold in the marketplace that may have been processed through, a, through an idol's temple. We have the freedom to do that, and that was perfectly justifiable. But you had another group within the church, the same church, dining, that thought dining in an idol's temple or even purchasing meat. Some groups were so sensitive that they, they, they felt even purchasing meat that had been sold from the temple's pro, you know, temple process was sinful and it, it violated their conscience. And so Paul is writing to them, Uh, to address this disagreement because it was beginning to smolder to such an extent that it presented a very real real risk of breaking into open flame in conflict and potentially doing irreversible damage to the unity of the church. And in chapter 8, Paul addresses this issue primarily by making an ethical argument. The force of chapter 8 is an ethical argument. Paul says, you and I have a moral imperative a, a, and to make every necessary sacrifice to avoid wounding another brother or sister's 
conscience. He says love demands that we make building up the body of Christ our utmost priority. And that's why he ends the way he does in verse 13 by saying, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. The issue for Paul isn't whether he eats meat or not, or nor does it matter to him if his brothers or sisters in Christ attain to his level of knowledge. That's not important to him. The issue for Paul is, am I walking in love that edifies the church? And at a minimum, that means making sure that we aren't doing anything that would cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble. Uh, on a practical level, that means, and we, this is how we applied it, that we'll often be called upon to set aside some privilege, some right, some preference to ensure that others in the body are not wounded and are built up. So that was chapter 8. Now last Sunday we began to look at chapter 9. And as we step through that doorway, Paul advances the same argument. He's not done with this issue but now he's doing so by force of his own personal example. So chapter 8 is an ethical argument. Chapter 9 is his personal example is put forward to advance this same argument. The verses we saw that we noted are simultaneously a defense of Paul's apostleship and a description of mature Christian discipleship that we are called to imitate. Because he ends the whole section in chapter 11, verse 1, calling us to imitate him as just as he imitates Christ. We said they're a defense of Paul's apostleship because the Corinthians had called into question Paul's credentials, his authority. And they are also a description of mature Christian discipleship because Paul revealed to us what made him tick as an apostle. He tells us that in the text that we're going to look at this morning. And it doesn't just tell us what makes him tick as an apostle, but what makes him tick as a mature Christian and as a leader in the church. Paul discloses how he approached the Christian life, and he concludes the whole discussion at the end of chapter 10 by calling us to follow in his footsteps. Paul's life as a whole, and particularly Paul's approach to Christian freedom, Christian liberty, becomes essentially a template that we individually can pattern and trace our lives after for the glory of God. So chapter 9, Paul sketching out for us by way of his own personal example, a framework, a paradigm for the proper use of our freedom in Christ. That's the heart of this chapter. And he like I said last Sunday, he doesn't do this in a strictly linear fashion, which is kind of how we're used to reading Paul. He instead moves back and forth between different themes. He'll talk about um, this whole theme of, of the proper use of Christian freedom. He'll do that by zeroing in on his rights, his restraint of those rights. He will bounce around between that and his race, his Christian race, how he runs the race of his Christian life, and even his reward. And you see that toward the end of the chapter as he speaks about running to win and what, what does that mean, this imperishable crown that we are running towards. So, so all of these themes are kind of intersecting. It's not just, oh, this ver these verses are this and these verses are that. He's constantly moving around. And, and last Sunday, we opened up and looked at verse, verses 1 to 14. And Paul began in those opening verses by rebutting their criticism that he was not a true apostle. They had criticized him 
Paul is, is bringing this apostolic confrontation, this word to them, this thing that the strong, the knowledgeable were doing that they wanted to continue to do, which was to dine in an idol's temple and to, to purchase meat and, and eat it and from the uh, marketplace. They wanted to do that, and that didn't, you know, that wasn't okay. And Paul's going to actually forbid that in chapter 10. As he gets into the latter part of chapter 10, he's going he's gonna to explain to them why that's not a good thing to do. They didn't like that. And so when you don't like the message, you have two options. You can either hear it or what? You can attack the messenger. And that's what you see them doing here. They're shooting the messenger, and they had been shooting Paul as a messenger. They were saying things like, clearly, Paul is not a real apostle. Because if he was, he'd be supported in gospel ministry by us and other churches. See, Paul was working to pay his own way. And they viewed that as, a, as an indicator that he wasn't truly an apostle. If, if he were a true apostle, he wouldn't restrict himself in this way. He wouldn't be working with his own hands. He would accept support from us and from other churches. And he wouldn't be moving from town to town as a tent maker, which we know he did in, from the book of Acts. And, of course, what's implied in that indictment is that Paul uh, doesn't have true authority. If he's not a true apostle and he doesn't have real authority, then they don't have to listen to what he has to say. So it's in a sense, in a sense they're trying to cut the legs out from underneath him by attacking his credibility, which they will do again as he writes 2 Corinthians, and he goes to much greater lengths to defend his apostolic ministry. But, but here, it even, even the seeds of that have been sown, and he is trying to address that. They are questioning his authority over them in the church. And his rebuttal in verses 1 and 2 uh, moves into um, his response. And uh, his response to that, uh, excuse me, their, his rebuttal was met with his response in verses 1 and 2, where he says, listen, I have seen the risen Christ. I have been commissioned by the risen Christ, and I have preached the gospel in places where it hasn't been before. That's, that's the mark of apostolic ministry. Not only have you seen and been commissioned by Christ, but you are also establishing new churches and gospel ministry is moving to where it hasn't been. And that was his life. That was, that was the testimony of his ministry. So their argument that he was not an apostle was a fallacious argument. It, it was an argument that was unsound. And then he rebuts that ad hominem attack further by going on in verses 3 to 6 to explain what his rights were. He says, I am an apostle. That's obvious. Now, what are my rights as an apostle? And he says, listen, I have a right to material support. I have a right to take along my family. If I had a wife, and uh, he didn't, but if he did, he's, some of the other apostles did, he says, I have a right to have those things, uh, have them come along with me. And again, what's implied in that is that that is to be covered at the church's expense. He says, as a leader in the church, I have every right to forego working with my own hands and to take support from those churches. And the rationale that he gives for such an entitlement uh, allowed, forced him in verses um, 7 to 14 to call three witnesses to the stand. He calls the witness of nature itself. He says, uh, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Verse 7. Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of it? The witness of nature validates everyone expects to receive the fruits of their labors. 
And then he calls into witness the law, the Old Testament law in verses 8 to 11. The law testifies that those who are employed in the sacred rites at the temple have a right to get their provision from that work, just as the, the, the ox was to be uh, able to thresh as it worked and to eat as it worked. He says, so those in the temple ought to get their, verse 13, those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So the Old Testament testifies that those who are involved in, in a sacred work should gain a material provision from their work. And lastly, he called to witness Christ himself in verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. This is a reference to Luke 10, Matthew 10, where Jesus says the worker is worthy of his wages. There's, a, there's, a, there's an appeal to even the Lord's instruction that when you go out and you work for the gospel, that you would be uh, able to claim support for that work. So Paul appeals to the witness of nature, the law, and even Christ himself as his rationale, as his proof that he was entitled, that he had a right to or a claim to support from those churches. And all of that leads to the second major theme, which is what we want to look at this morning, that Paul takes up in this sketch in chapter 9 on the proper use of Christian freedom, and that is his restraint. Verses 1 to 14 zeroed in on his rights for the most part. As we come to verse 12, again in verses 15 to 23, all of that has been put in service of what he wants to talk about this morning, what we're going to look at this morning, and that is Paul's restraint of those rights. So uh, the way that I want to kind of break this down, just to organize it in our thoughts, is break it down to three parts. I want to look first, uh, Paul's restraint through the eyes of the progress of the gospel. Well, I want to look at Paul's restraint through the eyes of his compulsion by the gospel. And then what we'll look at next Sunday is I want to consider Paul's restraint by his accommodation for the gospel. Uh, so three parts, really. We'll look at one and two this morning. Verse, verses 19 to 23 are their own thing, and we need to look at them in some detail next Sunday. So we want to talk about the progress of the gospel, the compulsion by the gospel, and then next Sunday we'll see Paul's accommodation for the gospel, how he accommodated himself to his audience to be able to clearly communicate the word of reconciliation. So we begin with the progress of of the gospel. We noted last week at the very end of our message that Paul's argument in verses 1 to 14 is kind of an odd argument because, you know, why is Paul spilling all this time and ink and time and energy being poured into defending, that validating that he was truly an apostle and that as an apostle he had this undeniable claim to be supported? Why is he doing that? Because he himself isn't making use of any of those things. It's not even something that he wants. So why is he going to such lengths to defend that? And the answer we noted was he had to first establish his credentials as an apostle and his right to material support before he could then point to that right and say, see, I have chosen of my own free will not to, take use of, not to make use of that. Right? You can't forfeit something that doesn't belong to you. You can't forfeit something that doesn't exist. So 
he had to, before he could lean into his restraint of his rights, he has to first establish that said rights exist and that he's entitled to them. So that's why he goes to such lengths to say, listen, I am an apostle, and as an apostle, this is what I'm entitled to according to the scriptures. But having laid all that out, that he is an apostle, and that as a leader in the church, he was entitled to support, he can now point to his own personal example and say, see, I have chosen not to make use of those things. I have chosen to set aside my rights, my privileges, what maybe I would prefer for the benefit of the church as a whole. He says in verse 12, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things. It is worth noting here what Paul says in verse 12. Paul's choice of words matters. In verse 12, he says, we endure all things, but this is not the normal word he uses for endure. It's a different term. The term here doesn't have the idea of uh, standing firm amidst sufferings, which is the normal word that we think of when we think of endurance. Here, the term he uses uh, picks up the idea of putting up with the kind of inconveniences, hardships, and practical sacrifices that working with his own hands and evangelizing encompass. So the, the emphasis here is on uh, putting up with hardship uh, and the inconveniences of those things, not so much about standing firm in the midst of suffering. And Paul's statement communicates and underscores, I think, two important points. And this is, this is worth noting. One, Paul says setting aside his own rights was a conscious choice on his part. It was a conscious decision. It was a movement of his own free will. And second, he understood by making that decision, he was embracing a certain measure of hardship. He understood that the choice had consequences, and he was willing to embrace those consequences. He says something very similar to the Thessalonian church in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. In verses 9 and 10, he says, You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you. Paul labored, he says, with his own hands night and day, with labor and hardship. Why? So as not to be a burden to anyone. This was what it means for him to love the brethren. This is what it means to walk in love toward our fellow brothers and sisters in the church. See, we're so conditioned to think of love in terms of selfish, emotional kind of language. We think of love in turn, we flattened out love for others to be nothing more than kind of warm, fuzzy feelings toward other Christians in the church. But love is so much more than that. Love edifies, we saw in chapter 8, verse 1. Love makes a conscious choice to sacrifice for others. Love is willing to bear others' burdens You choose, then, of your own free will to take upon yourself inconvenience, hardship, difficulty, so that others might be firmly established in their faith. That is the picture. We need to have have our hearts recalibrated to God's standard of love. 
in our hearts and in our lives. And what was Paul's reasoning for choosing to restrain his personal rights? If you look at the last part of chapter uh, verse 12, he says, we do this, we did not make use of this right, and we endure all things, here's the reason, so that we will cause no hindrance to the progress, hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Why has Paul chosen to restrain his rights, forego them? Why has Paul chosen to embrace hardship and inconvenience and sacrifice, working to pay his own way? Paul's convinced that for him, the most effective way that he could remove every obstacle to the gospel of Christ was to let go of those things. Paul is a man of singular passion. And that passion is the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what mattered to him. Everything he is and does, he says in verse 23, is for the sake of the gospel. And when he is faced with a choice between his rights and someone hearing the gospel for what it is, the good news that Jesus Christ in his pardoning grace freely bestows upon all who believes forgiveness and pardon and new life, that that good news, that people would hear that good news and that they might be saved. For him, that is all that matters. And anything that gets in the way of someone hearing that message can be easily, in his mind, laid aside. It can be set aside. It's nothing. And so I have to ask myself and I have to ask us, I wonder if we think that way as well. I mean, I wonder if our, if our churches really live that out as a consuming passion. Most of us have it on our website. Most of us put it in our statement of faith. Most of us have it in our philosophy of ministry. But is, is that really our consuming passion, that the gospel would go forth? Are we so concerned, as Paul was, about putting a hindrance to the gospel before a lost and perishing world that we would joyfully, willingly embrace all the inconveniences and hardships and sacrifices that inevitably travel with setting aside our rights. As Paul sketches out this paradigm for the proper use of freedom, and specifically his restraint of those rights, Paul's reasoning for doing so was avoiding anything that might prevent a clear road for the progress of the gospel. He would do anything, sacrifice anything for the progress of the gospel. Which leads us to the second point, his compulsion by the gospel. Paul's restraint of his rights, his restraint of his rights is, is motivated by his compulsion that comes by the gospel. And we need to understand what he means by that. As you look at these opening 14 verses or so, with the exception of verse 12, it's easy to kind of be taken aback by how, how passionately Paul is defending his rights, which is, seems counterintuitive. He goes to such length, and, and, and these rhetorical questions are they're emotionally charged. He, he goes to such lengths to defend his apostolic credential and his right to support. You might be tempted to think, well, Paul's, he's actually using a little reverse psychology here. That, uh, that maybe Paul's so sensitive about this topic because he actually wants support. And so, and so this is just a subtle way for him to sort of plant that seed in the minds of the Corinthian church. 
And Paul, I think, anticipates that. And, and uh, he anticipates what his critics might be thinking in response to his vigorous defense of his rights. And so I think that's what drives what he says in verses 15 to 18, at least a little bit. And I think that's why he responds the way he does. Because as vigorously and as passionately as he has argued for his right to support in verses 1 to 14, he is going to now turn and argue just as vigorously and passionately for his right to give up that support. In verse 12, we saw Paul restraining his rights for the progress of the gospel. But here in verses 15 to 18, he shows the restraint of his rights is compelled. It is, it is driven by the gospel itself. Look what he says in verse 15. But he says, I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Or woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul picks up here in verse 15, where he left off at the end of verse 12. Because remember, verse, he's moving around. It's not linear. He's bouncing around. Verses 13 and 14 were an added defense and argument for why he was entitled to support. But now in verse 15, he is back on this topic of his restraint of his rights. And this emotional defense that he made in the previous verses spills over into his defense of his right to relinquish that support. He doesn't need it. He says, I have used none of these things. Furthermore, just in case there's any confusion, he says, I am not writing, not saying this so that you would start supporting me. That's not my purpose in telling you this. He feels so, so strongly about surrender, the, the, the right he has to surrender his rights that he actually, we, we miss this in the English translations, he cuts himself off mid-sentence. He says, it would be better for me to die, and then he kind of stops, and then he says, no one will make my boast an empty boast. Paul's words are charged with emotion. He feels deeply about this, and we've all been there. We've all been so fired up about something. We've all been so... Uh, so our minds are so full of something we care about deeply that when someone says something that contradicts that, we're, we're so taken back by what they say that when we finally do respond, our brains are like ready to explode, right? We're just, it's so, oh, we, our minds are moving so quickly, we can hardly get the words out of our mouth. Uh, I do this a lot with Trisha. She, she, my mind is so full of things that I can hardly make sense of it. And she's like, okay. That is what Paul, that's what he's doing in this section. He says, as an apostle, yes, I'm entitled to support. But for him to assert those rights would have meant putting a hindrance in the way of his proclamation of the gospel. That was such an obvious thing to him that that would be a problem. It was such an odious thing to him. It was such a massive 
concern of his, the words are just shooting out of his mouth as he writes. No one will nullify or make my boast nothing. It's like when you put your finger over the end of a hose that's uh, running at full steam, right? The, the water pressure, open that thing up all the way and the water comes funneling out. You try and put your finger over that hose to block it off, what happens? Water shoots everywhere, right? You try and screw a, 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 a nozzle onto that thing while it's running, what happens? Water shoots everywhere. That's what his words are doing in this, in verse 15. It's, it's, it's all over the place. He is so full of uh, concern. And that's how we need to read verse 15, which brings us to the whole issue of what is his boast and why is he so concerned about it? Why is he so passionate about this? And most importantly, why does Paul mention it? What does it matter? Boasting is a very Paulish word. He he speaks of boasting uh, both negatively and positively. In a negative sense, it's obviously... Um, something we want to avoid. It's, it's a manifestation of pride, um, boasting in our works or boasting in ourselves or others in a way that um, is, is filled with pride and, and uh, puffed up. So that's a negative sense. But when Paul uses it in a positive sense, which he is here, it almost inevitably and paradoxically has to do with things that no natural man would boast in. The things that Paul boasts in are things that the natural man never boasts in, like Christ crucified or, um, or his weaknesses. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I would much rather boast in my weaknesses. Or um, he boasts in his sufferings. Like no natural person is glorying or reveling in or rejoicing in his sufferings or their sufferings. He boasts in those things which no natural person would boast. And so it's almost a given, as we kind of, well, what is his boast? It's almost a given that this is to be understood in those kinds of terms. Whatever Paul's boast is, it is most likely going to be something that the natural man or the natural woman wouldn't normally boast in. So having blurted out in verse 15 that no one will make his boast Null. No one will nullify or bring empty out his boast. He goes on then in verses 16 to 18 to explain what he means, why he said that. In verses 16 to 17, he explains what his boast isn't, okay, what it's not. And then in verse 18, he clarifies by speaking positively, by explaining what his boast is. So those are kind of two sub-points. First, we need to understand what his boast is not. And what's clear is his boast is not simply preaching the gospel. That's not something that he glories in. That's not something that he, uh, it's not the basis of his glorying. It's not something he revels in. It's not something he rejoices in, um, in and of itself. It is not simply preaching the gospel. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. Okay? So whatever his boast is, it's not the proclamation of the gospel in and of itself. He says, if I preach the gospel, which I do all the time, that is no grounds for boasting for me. And the reason it's no grounds for boasting is that it is something he must do of necessity. 
He says, I am one under compulsion. To preach the gospel of Christ isn't something he just sort of like, yeah, that's a good thing to do. I think I'll do that. No, no. It's something he must do. That's what the word means. God has ordained it. That's the, uh, that's the idea. That this, this is something that God has, has made clear to him that he must do. God has ordained it from his very um, birth. God revealed that to him in the Damascus Road. And he refers to it in Galatians 1. He says, God set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace and was pleased to reveal his son in me, and this is the reason, so that I might preach Christ among the Gentiles. He says, from that time on, from the time of his conversion, proclaiming Christ primarily to the Gentiles was both his calling, but it was his compulsion. It was what drove him. He had to do it because God had so taken hold of him. And his point is straightforward. He can't boast in the simple task of proclaiming the gospel because that's what he has to do by divine design, by divine commission. But then he goes on in verse 17 to further explain. So imagine that he's drilling down. Verse 15 kind of lays out the fact that that he has a boast. Verse 16 is explaining what his boast isn't. And then in verse 17, he gets a little bit more clear to explain, again, what he means. And he uses this illustration. He says there's two ways of doing things in life. Two ways. You can either do them voluntarily, meaning of your own free will as a free person, in which case you're entitled to some some pay, some, some reward. Or you can do them by necessity, involuntarily, as a slave, in which case you're not entitled to anything. You simply fulfilled your duty. He says, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. If against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Verse 17 has always been confusing to me. What is it, Paul? What is he trying to say by what he writes there? And what has been so illuminating and helpful, and it's sometimes confusing to me, is that Paul is simply illuminating and, and, and expanding on what he's just said in verse 16. that he's, he's, The point of it is that he is one under compulsion. He, he is one operating involuntarily. He's not saying, well, I have a choice. He's saying, you have, in life there are two choices, and I am one under compulsion. I operate by divine command. He cannot boast in his preaching because he doesn't do so of his own choosing. A better way to translate verse 17 might be say, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But as it is, I am doing so against my will. I have a stewardship entrusted to me. That's what's going on. If he had, if he had gone out to preach the gospel, and that was something he just sort of randomly chose to do because it seemed like a good thing to do. He says, if that was my, my, that's what prompted me to preach the gospel, well, then I'd be, in, I'd be entitled to some kind of a reward, some kind of compensation, what's due. But he said, that's not the case. He says, I have a stewardship. I am one under compulsion. He is Christ's slave. 
He has to preach. Paul can claim nothing because at the end of the day, he has done simply what he ought. And then these words, 16 and 17, Paul echoes the words of Christ in Luke 17, verse 10, where Christ says, So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded of you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. There's no, there's no profit. There's no gain by doing what you ought as a slave. You're simply done your job. Paul says preaching the gospel, simply proclaiming the message of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins, that is nothing for him to boast about. There's no reward that he's due for that. And that's not what he's glorying in or boasting in. So having made clear what his boast is not, as we come to verse 18, we are still left with the question, what is his boast? What is it that he's getting at? What is this boast that he is so concerned about having, uh, so concerned about nul- having been nullified? And again, to boast here has the idea of that in which one glories or that, in, that is the basis of your, one's glorying. It carries the idea of rejoicing and reveling as well. And so he asks the rhetorical question in verse 18, well then, what then is my reward? If it's not preaching the gospel, because that's just what I have to do, that's the bare minimum, what is it that I am rejoicing in and boasting in? His divine appointment as an apostle was a given. It was something he had to do. He did not choose it. He is simply being faithful to the stewardship entrusted to him. So what is his boast? What is his his reward? They're the same thing. They're the same thing. He says his pay, his reward in these circumstances is to do something that wasn't imposed upon him. Namely, preaching the gospel free of charge. He understands that to to receive a reward and to boast in something means you must do it of your own free will. And he, the only thing he can do of his own free will is to preach the gospel free of charge. Paul says, my reward, my pay is to receive no pay. It's a play on words. Paul's pay, his reward, is the freedom to preach the gospel without any earthly restraints on his ministry. Paul's reward, his boast, is to operate from a position of earthly weakness, working with his own hands, paying his own way, so as not to slow down the forward progress of the gospel. That was what he gloried in. That was what made him boast, to make the free gospel free of charge. And he does so, he concludes, so that he will not misuse what is rightfully his in the gospel. If you look at the end of verse 18, he says, Then, he says, What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. That term, make full use, is um, that is the kind of literal translation, but it really captures the idea in the context of misuse. It's not just that he's making full use, it's that it has the potential to be misused. 
The Corinthians viewed Paul's restraint of his rights as him not having those rights in the first place. Well, he must not be an apostle. And Paul says, no, listen, he doesn't he does indeed have the freedom to take support, and he's argued that effectively, but for him to use his rights may be viewed as misuse. He's concerned that he will be lumped into the same category as those who he talks about in 2 Corinthians who are peddling the word of God. And he doesn't want that accusation to have any weight. And so he uses an intensive form of the verb here. I don't think he's just saying, kind of as a tautology, I didn't take use of the gospel, so I wouldn't take use of the gospel, or take use of support, so I wouldn't take use of support. That doesn't, that's a nonsense statement. He's saying, I didn't take support so as not to misuse, or, be, or at least perceived as having misused or abused my rights. Paul is under compulsion by the gospel to restrain his rights for the greater progress thereof. We need to understand this. The the gospel compelled him to do this. So let me try and tie up all these loose ends because we've, we've covered a lot of ground in these verses. And Paul is making a very nuanced argument here that if we just read past it, which I've done for years, just read past it, it's very easy to miss a lot of what he's trying to say. And we don't, we don't catch it. A couple things, well, three things. First, just as Paul has made clear in chapter one, in the same way he's doing so here, he's saying this, man's weakness is exactly where God's strength shines brightest. Man's weakness is exactly where God's strength shines brightest. What do I mean by that? They claimed Paul's uh, insistence on working with his own hands was beneath the dignity of a true apostle. That's That's the force of that criticism. They claimed it proved he wasn't a true apostle because he wasn't acting like an apostle. He says... And Paul's saying, what looks to you like weakness, what lacks dignity in the eyes of the world, what to you seems like unilateral disarmament is exactly how God will move the gospel of grace forward through me. So voluntarily surrendering his rights, he says, will in, the point is, that will often enhance our freedom to be a servant of the gospel all the more. Right? His weakness is God's strength. And so I would just ask you to consider this question in terms of your own ministry. How might your assertion or insistence on certain rights, preferences, prerogatives, how might that unwittingly become misuse of those rights? Such that the gospel itself is not clearly heard. Think about that. Because we need to be reminded that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so, so I think one thing that comes out of these verses as Paul defends himself 
is that man's weakness is exactly where God's strength shines brightest. The thing that they criticized him for was the very thing that he gloried in. Secondly, freely setting aside your own rights for the greater progress of the gospel is one of, not the only, but one of the most effective ways you and I can showcase the heart of the gospel itself. Say that again. Setting aside your own rights for the greater progress of the gospel is one of the most powerful ways you and I can showcase the heart of the gospel itself. When we, of our own volition, love others enough to die to our privileges, our rights, our preferences for their benefit, in some way, our ministry, in an imperfect but I think meaningful way, it demonstrates the self-giving, self-renouncing, self-sacrifice of Christ himself. How better to reinforce the message that Christ has laid down his life a ransom for many than to willingly lay down what is rightfully ours so that they might have an opportunity to come to Christ. So I think we need to understand that in our surrendering of our rights, we show the heart of the gospel itself in a very tangible way. Lastly, these verses should, as they have for me, lay upon us all a sense of compulsion of necessity to make the gospel known. Paul says in preaching the gospel, he has nothing to boast about. He says, woe to him if he doesn't preach the gospel. He'll say later in verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. In Philippians 1, he, he points out, he says, the, the purpose of his life was to remain with them for the joy and progress of their faith. Yeah, we're not apostles, okay? There are no apostles today. I get that. But it doesn't change the fact that we have all been commissioned by the risen Savior to make and mature disciples and to teach them all that Christ commanded. Like, this is our responsibility as Christians. We sow gospel seed. This is what we do. And so we need the Lord to give us a sense of necessity a sense of urgency to make Christ known. And with that necessity then laid upon us, may we have the attitude that Paul has and gladly readjust our lives for the progress of the gospel. This is, this is what he's getting at as he gets into verses 19 to 23, and we'll see this next time. He is willing to accommodate his stance for the clear hearing of the word of God. He's not, he's not accommodating the message. He's not changing the message. But he is accommodating his personal conduct so as to win the more. And this is his point all along. And so as we think about surrendering our rights and giving up what we're entitled to, even good things, when you understand that there's a way to do that, that allows us marginal gospel impact. In other words, we can do more than if we didn't. 
And we need to be willing to give those things up. Whatever those things are. It may be financial. It may be other things more practical. But whatever those things are, we must be willing to lay them aside for the greater progress of the gospel. And that's really the heart of our Christian freedom. We keep coming back to it again and again. But Paul says, your freedom, the freedom we have, is not for yourselves. It's not to become a base of operation for the flesh, but rather through love to serve one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's example and for the way in which he boasted not in the, 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 the thing that he ought to do, which was we all ought to do, which is to proclaim Christ and make your gospel known. But his glory, his boast, what brought him joy was the very thing that he got to do of his own choosing, which was to surrender his rights and to make the gospel as free as possibly could be. He wasn't going to draw upon the resources of others. He would work night and day in labor and hardship. He would put up with all the inconveniences, all the sacrifices, all the difficulties, so as to give a clear road for the gospel to move forward. Lord, may we have that same attitude. May you convict us where we need convicting, encourage us where we need encouraging. May we give thanks and glory to you no matter what you are doing in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.